recommendations and content discovery is kind of the problem that user modeling, I think, is useful for. And yeah, we see increasingly that the real-time aspect is key. You can frame each page view or each interaction or each notification that happens to your user in your product as a decision. Decision on you know where to send them, what to show them. All of these decisions should be navigated from the place of understanding what the user wants, what sort of their traits might be, and you should always have some objective that you are optimizing for. You should be taking everything the user gives you about themselves as a hint to what they might like. It really helps with the cold start. You have maybe some onboarding form to your application or to your event or whatever it is. You should utilize what people tell you in that form. And if they can bring with them some social profile, bootstrapping the initial version of the user model from this and then refining based on behavior, right? So I can show you a couple of interesting items, users, whatever, and then refining this kind of real-time feedback loop. That's the magic, right? We need to figure out a way to really show that we are on the side of the end user and that we are on the side of the platform owner and somehow reframe this push for arbitrary engagement at any cost into meaningful engagement that's actually helpful for people. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, a recommender systems experts. For today's episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Daniel Svonaver. Daniel is the CEO and co-founder of Superlinked and he has also been working for more than five years as a senior software engineer and tech lead at Google, where he was working on forecasting and pricing systems for YouTube ads, as well as on user modeling, which will be one of the topics that we are going to address in today's episode. But not only this is what Daniel has done in the past, he has also founded several startups and he holds a master's degree in software engineering from the Slovak University of Technology. User modeling will be one of today's topics. We will also go into depth about real-time personalization. We will have a glimpse into the current ML tooling landscape. And we will also definitely go into the current endeavor that Daniel is involved in, which is Superlinked. So hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Uh, happy to be here. Longtime fan of the podcast. Really recommend everybody to check out, for example, the adversarial attacks episode for recommender systems that really blew my mind. Thank you for having me and uh, let's get this started. Thanks. I mean, it's always nice if we can also relate back to some of the episodes that we have already had in the past. And I mean, there are already plenty of them. I'm trying to do my best to come up with more and more on a monthly basis. I will do and try my best to keep up with it. Daniel, I already mentioned a couple of points about you, but I guess you are the best person to talk about yourself. So <laughs> can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I would consider myself to be a pretty technical person by training, by background, uh, you know, doing coding competitions since high school, 
you mentioned Slovak Technical University, which I'm pretty sure nobody or most people don't know. Uh, but I would say, you know, broadly, the listeners should imagine this kind of Eastern European technical upbringing, right? But then it was clear to me that I will never be the best uh, in, in coding competitions. And so I switched to working on different projects and doing internships. Uh, so I did the Google and IBM research internship during university. And I realized that actually you can have a real world impact with algorithms. And then I started my first company on the back of that thought. Um, it was two engineers starting a company together, which is this typically ends, uh, you know, in tears, uh, because you build some very cool stuff, but then the business side doesn't keep up usually. And so, um, after maybe a year of working on a system that produces summaries of people's vacations, so mm -hmm. compiles all kinds of information from the, you know, photos and, and all kinds of data from a trip and then creates a story out of that. We, after a year of kind of yeah, doing a few pilot deployments and so on, we went with my co-founder back to uh, work in a bigger company and we ended up at uh, YouTube, both of us. So, you know, I, I would recommend people doing that out of university mm -hmm. actually, because, and maybe for not for seven years, like I did, but maybe for three years, uh, I think that's the kind of maximum uh, ROI because you learn how you know this stuff works in practice and then it's just so much easier to go and do stuff on your own which is what i did after i left youtube and um yeah now with superlinked we are trying to turn into product what's there i built very custom right and that has to do with understanding the users of your product and creating a more engaging and safer experience for them okay okay i see so definitely uh, something that we are going to cover. However, there are actually two questions that are popping up in my mind when you have been talking about this. So the first one is, what are the main things that you learned when you have been founding for the first time that you learned back then that you can adapt to or can use today for what you are doing at Superlinked? Go read the Lean Startup book. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a good starting point. And then Jobs to be Done. That's a good package. Because we were building for a long time towards something we thought should be a certain way, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, from the early days interacting with uh, enough people, not with mm -hmm. just like a very close circle of initial users, but a bit broader. And actually realizing where the people are in their head and then going towards this, right? It's very hard to create a completely new technology and at the same time change how people do stuff. So mm -hmm. I think in general, you want to pick one degree of freedom where you are changing something and then mm -hmm. fix everything else, basically. Basically, back then you missed the point of testing your market or your customer assumptions as early as possible somehow. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And going into way too much engineering for the sake of engineering, uh, we were like coming up with new algorithms to solve problems that then we realized were actually not the main problems that we were supposed to be solving. Yeah, Definitely worth making that experience. Uh, I mean, if you have gone through that yourself, then it's much easier to adapt to it and do that or, or learn from it in a later stage uh, of your career and, and mm -hmm. take it from there. 
Um, actually, the second question is, I mean, you have spent more than five years at Google, uh, but you mentioned you, if you could do again their same experience, you would rather recommend staying for about three years. Why actually three? So is it that the returns somehow diminished by then? Or what is the reason why you recommend people to stay rather three years in such a company? Obviously, it's a ballpark. And yeah, for me, it maybe adds up to something like seven years. The way to think about that, and probably about any job, is that in the first couple sort of half years of the job or first couple quarters, the expectations of people around you and the responsibility and the types of problems you are solving tend to increase or grow in scope very quickly, mm -hmm. right? So uh, at YouTube, every half a year, the size of the problem I was looking at Uh, and, you know, back then we were like writing MapReduce by hand and doing all those types of things. <laughs> In those early times, this kind of expansion hides the other problems, right? Like there are other problems about working at a big company where things might not be moving as fast as you might want. There are all these other aspects of making progress, not just creating the best product or best internal tool, you know, you have to kind of manage everybody that's involved in that process and, you know, there, there are difficulties, but this is in the early years, for me at least, offset by this growth of scope and sort of reinvention of the job every half a year, if you want, if you really are focused. Uh, but this doubling just slows down inevitably, right? And I think this happens around those sort of three, four years on the job. You, I think it starts to sort of plateau or, or get some diminishing returns. And then you have to work so much more to advance by a little bit because there is just more competition there on the top. And mm -hmm. uh, the availability of those really interesting problems kind of gets uh, scars and more and more scars. When you think about it, basically you end up with some sort of estimate like four years. Uh, it's a good time to you know, random walks with restart, basically. <laughs> it's, it's, time to, it's, time to, it's time to restart, basically, yeah. Okay, but the time that you spent working for YouTube was definitely not spent unwisely. I mean, you learned many things and you contributed a lot. And you also mentioned that you worked a lot on user modeling back at the time, which is the first topic for this episode today. Can you give us a first coverage about what have been the problems you were dealing with while working for YouTube? and mm -hmm. also how user modeling was relating to this? Mm -hmm. So just broadly, you know, user modeling, I think is uh, quite an ambiguous uh, term. So mm -hmm. the way I think about it is that you have this problem of understanding your users, individual, single users, in order to make or for your product to make decisions. So you can frame each page view or each interaction or each notification that happens to your user in your product as a decision. Decision mm -hmm. on you know where to send them, what to show them. Uh, and all of these decisions should be navigated from the place of understanding what the user wants, what sort of their traits might be. And you should always have some objective that you are optimizing for in mind. And so for me, broadly, the problem of user modeling is collecting the data that users generate while using your product. So that's, you know, the behavioral data, but there is also metadata that they might create to describe themselves. They might be creating content and, you know, there might even be third party sources that they, for example, bring with them. So 
in, you know, for example, the Web3 space, people sign into services with wallets and bring in almost like a little passport of data with them intentionally, right? That's kind of the difference. Yeah, yeah. And then you should use that input to better understand them and uh, offer a better service. So collecting all the data and then running some models on top to make the data useful. I like the saying that data is like oil because oil is useless if you don't refine it, right? So actually by itself, it's uh, it's useless. Uh, So you need to organize it in a way that makes it useful. Or refine it in a way that makes it then consumable by uh, certain downstream services, cars, Mm -hmm. buses, trucks. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the buses and trucks? (laughs) So I think the buses and trucks is kind of how you actually get value out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And you do that by piping the data back or piping the insights from the data back into the product experience, right? Mm -hmm. So not just having a dashboard, about what the you know users might be doing, uh, which is certainly the the best first step, right? Monitoring analytics. This is where a lot of the data science effort goes uh, to you know make sense of this uh, data. But then, okay, you are tracking the KPIs, good. But how mm-hmm. do you move the KPIs? And that happens by actually taking those insights about users and putting them back into the product in the form of recommendations or in general relevance, right? That's kind of one side of the coin. And then the other side might be safety. So suppression of bad behaviors or, you know, removal of spam. For example, at YouTube, you know, on the sort of safety side, you can take the example of YouTube comments. So Mm -hmm. uh, many, many years ago, YouTube comments were not the best place to be, let's put it that way. (laughs) And a lot of the a lot of work went into changing that and surfacing mm-hmm. the helpful comments with the right vibe, which mm-hmm. is not a very precise way to put it. But I think if you have a bunch of user-generated content in your product, you are in charge of setting the tone of what the code of conduct on your platform should be, right? Mm-hmm. What you want to inspire. And then somehow you have to figure out a way to encode it in the system because you have, you know, million comments generated per per day easily. So Mm -hmm. there is kind of no way to really moderate that other than aligning the machine with what you think is a good idea to highlight, basically. Okay, I see. How actually does that relate with using user models for personalization or more specifically for recommendations? So I already get that uh, for building user models, for creating user models, you use different sources of information. You use the behavioral data, you use what users do to self-describe themselves or their created content that might be possible to draw some conclusions about themselves uh, because they basically show who they are through the content they create Mm -hmm. uh, and also through the third parties. So different sources of data, different notions of data, somehow banded to also your platform when it comes, for example, to the behavioral data. So now we do all have all these different sources of user data, and we do have certain, let's say, use cases for personalizing content on our page. So how do you connect these two to worlds? So what is what is in the middle of it? Mm-hmm. Vector embeddings. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of vector embeddings, yeah. basically right so here maybe a good reference uh, for people who haven't seen it yet i would go read the tiktok monolith paper Mm -hmm. right 
so TikTok has a AI cloud offering now. Conversation can be had around the company as such, but I think what is not disputable is the quality of their recommender infrastructure, uh, especially with the eye towards the real-time nature of it, right? So I think this is something they do quite well and uh, people have uh, stuff to learn from them. One of the aspects there, for example, is uh, not only having vector embeddings or these representations that help you understand what's related and what's not related for the content, which is normally mm -hmm. the strategy, but also having it for users. And there you have a choice of doing it only at the query time, right? So user mm -hmm. comes to your platform and now you have all these you know, sources of data that you are reconciling into a picture of who, what the user is about. And you can do that at query time and just create that vector and search into the uh, vector space of the content to find a recommendation, right? This is kind of mm -hmm. the two-tower approach. But what, for example, we at Superlinks are thinking about and the way we approach it is that we actually also store the user embeddings. So we actually materialize them into a database because then it's not only a tool to search the content database, but it's useful in and of its own. Uh, if you have real-time updated user embeddings of everybody in your system, then you can do things like clustering. You can identify segments of users that maybe need different treatment in your product or would benefit from being addressed by a differently tuned recommendation model, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do label transfer, right? So if you have labels for your users, let's say that have been marked as spam accounts, you might want to transfer those labels on uh, previously sort of unexamined accounts and you can do that by proximity in the embedding space. Yeah, there, there are just like a bunch of benefits to actually also materializing the user side of the two towers. Okay, I see. So you have been working on user modeling during your time at YouTube. Can you think about further challenges uh, mm -hmm. that you have been facing during that time when it came to user modeling? And how actually did user modeling or was it connected to uh, the forecasting of ads and ads mm -hmm. performance, for example? Yeah, so I'll give you two completely opposite extreme examples of uh, forecasting. Then we cover the space. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, with everything else in between. So two examples of behavioral prediction of slightly different mm -hmm. type. First problem, imagine that you have many hundreds of hours of content uploaded to your platform every day, and you have to edit the upload time, make a decision whether to transcode the uploaded video into 20 different versions to serve on 20 different devices, or you will do that transcoding when a view actually comes and somebody wants to view the content. The real-time transcoding is much more expensive than the kind of batch transcoding that you can do as the content is being uploaded. So basically you have to decide, you have to predict, will there be enough views for this mm -hmm. video that just is being uploaded? So you have no kind of prior on performance of that video. You know, of course, about the author, you know about metadata and so on, and you have to make a decision. Which means it's not too expensive at all or in general, but it might be too expensive for a given reach of a mm -hmm. video that I'm predicting it to have, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the time you realize this, right, because a mm -hmm. bunch of views is coming, so you are doing the real-time transcoding, and at some point you are 100 times more expensive compared to 
because it takes you a while to realize because it's kind of distributed system. So at some point you are hundred times more expensive than just taking the decision initially, okay, let's transcode this one to all the formats, let's push that into a CDN and you know, you'll, you'll save on all that network transfer, all that uh, real-time compute. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's kind of funnily a binary decision, right? So you might be working yeah. with some probability distributions, but at the end of the day, there are just these two actions that you have to take with kind of a limited prior. Yeah, so, so this is kind of an example of short-term uh, prediction uh, with not so much information. And then for the ad performance prediction, right? Uh, so this is kind of what I was mostly focused on during my time there. Imagine you are you have this interface through which people buy ads, okay? So people come in and they buy $10 billion worth of ads every year. And the way they do that is they, they come in and they start to create a campaign. And the mm-hmm. campaign has tens of different types of settings that it can have. It can target keywords, it can target different aspects of the video, it can target different aspects of the user model, so the model of the viewer of the video, so interests, things like this. So basically just many different levers that let you specify your audience that you want to reach with yes. your ads, right? Down to IDs of videos your <laughs> ad should run on. Okay, okay, so okay. Uh, there is like whole industry of third parties that identify subsets of videos, and this can be, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 videos, for example, and then these companies would sell that list and then advertisers buy those lists and uh, use them to target the ads because the mm-hmm. seller claims that this set of videos has certain type of audience or certain type of quality. And so then the configuration targets specific video IDs, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very complicated. That's you know, long story short. Uh, but as the user is doing that, right, it's creating that campaign, they expect that in the real time, they'll see a set of estimates of what the campaign will do when you run it. What do you mean by what will it do? So how many clicks it will win? So, you know, the campaign has budget and a bid, and there is always some goal that the buyer has in mind. I want to get mm-hmm. this many clicks or, you know, on certain type of audience. And so the forecasting system has to be taking into account a very complicated description of the campaign, and it needs to be predicting, okay, if this, you know, runs in a week and competes mm-hmm. with everything else that will be running in a week, which can be literally 100,000 other campaigns, how will this campaign uh, you know, perform in that competition on this future traffic, right? Okay, I see, yeah. And you need to sort of compute that real time. That's the first problem because it's a part mm-hmm. of the iteration of the buying flow. So the user tweaks the campaign, sees the result. Ah, okay, mm-hmm. not enough clicks. Okay, I need to relax some constraints somewhere. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, now, now the number uh, increased. Uh, good, I like this, right? Which, by the way, there is like an important detail that I mentioned, which is the user has expectations about when they change one of the constraints in a certain way, the number goes up or down, or it should go, Mm -hmm. right? There are these kind of expectations of this monotonous behavior. Like if Mm -hmm. I relax a constraint, there is no reason this should become more expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you need to be also consistent across that search space of different campaigns. This is hard, but the most extreme case of it is when they buy one year ahead and when uh, the campaigns are not auction campaigns, but reservation campaigns. Basically, you have to say, I will deliver a million impressions and I promise this to you for this price. And then you sign Mm -hmm. a contract, right? 
So you are now committing your, the platform to serving that campaign of very specific volume at very specific price a year in the future. And it targets specific video ideas that you are now trying to predict how many views there, there will be mm -hmm. on those videos in a year. And then how this will uh, compete with all the other campaigns you sold. This is the opposite extreme, right? So in the first okay. problem, we were predicting something that happens in an hour or even yeah. less. The other example, we are predicting something that happens in a year that can create mm -hmm. a, you know, multi-million dollar liability per campaign for your company. So in both cases, so the first being the video upload case, I will just refer to it as this uh, for mm -hmm. the moment. And the second one, though, somehow the ads performance forecast. So I do understand that both of these cases have really high real-time performance requirements. And by performance, I mean really the latency. So you almost expect, especially in the latter case, almost instantaneous feedback because mm -hmm. you don't want to wait for minutes to get the result of your changed settings in terms of audience reach. You want to have it in, yeah, let's maybe, I would assume sub-seconds that you can mm -hmm. almost instantaneously get the yes. feedback and then pull the levers as long as you want to uh, yeah. reach the, the certain audience you want to get. However, I miss the aspect of the user model because given the video upload case, I mean, there is a user, we know something about the user, we might also know how successful in terms of reach or other factors, the content of that user that the user created before was. Mm -hmm. And is it now like that you are exploiting all these different sources of information for a user to answer the decision of batch and have it everywhere saved mm -hmm. when it needs to be served? Or is it not really um, the far reaching content so that I will just decide to do so in, in real time? Or where is actually the user model coming into play when it comes to the video upload case? Yeah, so on one hand, you have the author of the video, right? And mm -hmm. their past performance. And, you know, this then acts as a feature into the prediction for mm -hmm. this specific use case. So mm -hmm. one way to think about this is like a stack. Some people could call it, you know, you have a feature store where you represent mm -hmm. the, the uploader description. And then, you know, you have some general understanding of the viewer appetite let's say, and that one is not, let's say, per user, but it's an aggregated model mm -hmm. uh, that tries to predict, okay, how many views at this time a video of these properties might get. So maybe that one is not like per user, but it's still some aggregation of what do you expect from the users of your platform? Okay. It's uh, created from basically yeah, all these all these different sources of data that you might have that you try to integrate. You know, that's the uploader and Just to make it a bit more specific for the ad performance forecasting, because the campaigns are so complex, you can't really train a model that takes the campaign as an input and spits out anything, pretty much. The constraints of these campaigns are not really smooth. So, you know, it's, it's something that you have to actually simulate rather than try to estimate from a description of a campaign. Because these campaigns will be competing in certain way. You have to simulate that competition. Where you can do modeling is predicting the traffic, right? Okay. So okay. in a simple way, this could be a time series prediction problem, right? Mm -hmm. You would somehow segment your inventory, your, your traffic, and then you would extrapolate 
some time series based statistics over those segments. And then you would try to mm-hmm. somehow feed your campaigns into those segments. Unfortunately, this doesn't really work because again, the campaigns are too specifically targeted. You would never kind of generate those segments fine-grained enough to figure out how they satisfy the campaigns. And so what you have to do is you have to kind of generate almost like a future log. So you have to sort of create like a future events of people coming Mm -hmm. to your platform and actually interacting with it. And this is where a user model is useful because it can, you know, nowadays uh, generative AI is the (laughs) big topic. Uh, But basically, you know, it's kind of running a model the opposite way, right? So we are feeding it uh, some random vector and it's spitting out users. And then, you know, you have a bunch of future users and now you can simulate your campaigns against this. And, you know, then each user represents a thousand actual users, right? But Mm -hmm. they have all the properties like a normal user would have. And uh, therefore then the campaigns which target users Mm -hmm. work with this representation as opposed to segments, right? So we're trying to kind of create future users and and do the simulation on on top of them. Let me just come up with a very simplified example just to understand whether I'm getting the gist of it. So Mm -hmm. let's say there's a world in which you can sell chocolate and ice cream and uh, you know that... Let's assume 75% of people are interested in chocolate, 25% are interested in ice cream. Mm -hmm. And now I want to uh, run a campaign that is advertising um, ice cream. Mm -hmm. So, and now I just want to know, okay, I do have these two segments, which are somehow aggregations of users, but Mm -hmm. using the same model like I use for a single user just to represent a cohort of users. Mm -hmm. So, and now I'm basically checking how many of these users I will reach with my ice cream at, and then I can say, hey, since I assume that I will be having 25% of my whole user base being ice cream interested for the next 12 months, somehow averaged or something like that, I can say, okay, 25% times the number of overall users. So this are the people you're going to reach times there. Uh, let's, for example, assume a, a daily average clicks or something like that so if you could do it this way that would be nice (laughs) and you could if you had two segments you would basically your venn Mm -hmm. diagram has three boxes right Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can sort of somehow model each box and you're good to go Mm -hmm. unfortunately this is not the the case you have you know venn diagram with thousand variously Mm -hmm. overlapping sets and therefore you have to kind of pretend you are creating actual individual users Yes, mm-hmm. they represent hundred. You know, each simulated user represents hundred or thousand actual pe- future people, but they are yeah. like uh, fully fledged people. So they have interests. They have they have all these combinations of the various sets in the Venn diagram mm-hmm. in proportions that are realistic to the actual population, and you have enough of them to get a good sense of all the overlaps between all the sets in the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. But you can't model the actual overlaps. You are you are doing that. It's almost like a Monte, Monte Carlo a little bit because you are kind of sampling from all the users and then you are projecting that somehow in the future and you have enough of them to get a good, good sense of how that Venn diagram basically looks and what intersects mm-hmm. with what. And the additional benefit is that these people are compatible with your campaign descriptions because your campaigns mm-hmm. target actual real people, not segments, right? And so therefore, 
your simulator can then pick up a campaign, pick up you know the future uh, user traffic made mm -hmm. out of individual actual simulated people, and then it can uh, sort of figure out all right how these campaigns will compete and what's going to be going on. Therefore, I try to heavily uh, simplify it, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's by. <laughs> It's way not as easy as this is. I mean, it's not like people were having a preference for either ice cream or chocolate. They might be having a preference for both of them. And there, mm -hmm. then there is not a world where there are only two things I could be interested in, but there are thousands of things that I'm interested mm -hmm. in and somehow distributing my energy and time over so yeah. or my attention. What we can do is kind of, you know, those were two very specialized examples, mm -hmm. right? Very extreme specialized examples, which, you know, a platform like YouTube would have, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe to kind of bring this uh, home a little bit, we can talk about <laughs> something in the middle of the road that most platforms might be Oh, dealing please with, go ahead. <laughs> right? And there, you know, it's, I would say, content discovery, right? So for YouTube, you know, 60 plus percent of watch time is driven by recommended videos there on the site. The, the YouTube shorts launched after I left the company. So I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if they published some stats for this, but it's all basically recommended driven, right? There is no mm -hmm. search. You are just, you know, so it's 100% driven by, by recommendations. <laughs> As well as, you know, so obviously TikTok is nowadays also very clear representation of content discovery mattering a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And then I would also mention the trend of social commerce. So we have these apps uh, coming from Asia, Temu uh, and others that Sheen, for example, they, they have their own app as well. And it's uh, kind of recommender-based uh, shopping as opposed to search-based. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in West, we really think about shopping as kind of search first, right? I see something somewhere or get an idea, go search for it. And then we all worry about search relevance, right? And then there is some purchase further down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems that this is shifting a little bit towards a recommender engine-based situation where you are kind of window shopping or you are getting inspired or you are consuming content. And as a side effect of this, you have the opportunity to buy stuff. I think in that case, you know, recommendations and content discovery is kind of the problem that user modeling, I think, is useful for. And yeah, we see increasingly that the real-time aspect is key. And the reason for that, I think, is that you really want to close that feedback loop, right? So basically, if your system figures out, all right, this user should absolutely see cut on skateboard video, okay? And then... The time it takes you between realizing this in the system, the mm -hmm. user seeing the video and the user responding. So, okay, watching it or not, or, you know, liking it even. And then how long does it take you to take that response and update your understanding of, okay, what does the user want, right? And then showing this to them again. So this is almost like, uh, you know, the user is together with the system converging to something that they really like. And if they can run these loops really fast, then within one user session, they get to where they want to go. As opposed to having this kind of batch process that every hour kind of updates all of these pre-computes and then you serve recommended videos based on which video you are on right now or recommended products based on which product you are viewing right now. If you can mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, shortcut that feedback loop from half an hour to a second, it's like a whole different thing, basically.
you personalize before you run at risk of losing the user because the user just feels like the current session is not tailoring what the user's assumed intent is. Would you mm -hmm. describe it like that or is mm -hmm. it something that goes into the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, that's really key in order to have a chance in this fight for attention nowadays, right? And then I think also this whole idea of real-time data infrastructure changes how we build systems. It changes what user experiences we build. So this is, for example, if somebody is thinking, oh, at which point of time should I start worrying about this, right? You might end up building a different system if you go with this uh, paradigm, right? So mm -hmm. the, these apps that we see succeed and hit, you know, first place in the US App Store charts, they're designed around a system that can real-time personalize the content, right? So I would say I would really take it from the start and build that into the core design of the product. So that's on the product decision side. And then on yeah. the engineering side, I think it also changes how we work with these systems because you can change something and immediately see the effect of the change. Mm -hmm. You can, mm -hmm. you know, let's say you are building a data pipeline that updates your embeddings, right? If every time you want to test it, you need to sort of run, you know, Spark cluster has to boot up and stuff needs to be happening and then something somewhere updates all at once, all the vectors. So basically the batch scenario, right? Yeah, in the batch scenario, you kind of work with this on and off, right? It's not yeah. kind of a flow type of work. But if yeah. you can, you know, inject a data point on the input, see it go through the system sort of instantly and create an update and then you kind of see, okay, what is this, what is this doing? It's almost like going from, you know, working in uh, uh, C++ and building stuff for a long time into mm -hmm. kind of uh, hot updates in JavaScript where you can change stuff and it's, you know, so you see it right away. I think it makes the developers maybe a bit lazy. I am kind of an old school guy. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's super clear that the productivity just skyrockets. When checking the Superlinked website, I also found a blog post in which you claimed that real-time personalization or real-time is going to be the buzzword in 2023. Mm -hmm. So I definitely see or share your perspective on the added value of real-timeness. And you already said that it has an impact on how you need to think about how you need to integrate it with the product, but also, of course, in terms of technology. So I've been in a situation in the past where I've been fighting a lot for having some certain real-time recommenders in place or a near real-time <laughs> so that you really want within a session to update your knowledge and not only the knowledge, but also what comes out of the knowledge. So what you for example, said would be a vector representation of a user that is updated and can then be used to then serve the next video in a row. My question is as follows. Do you think that this is of equal importance in various industries, use cases and domains where recommendations are adding value? Is it everybody that should use real-time personalization? When should they use if they are mature or not as mature? Or what do you think would be the right time and the right fit for real-time personalization? Mm -hmm. So one heuristic uh, that uh, I think is useful for the answer here is looking at the systems around the system you are building, right? So mm -hmm. let's say if the kind of system you are working with 
that you are inserting a recommender in is made out of a bunch of batch pipelines, right? And your system would be called from one such pipeline because that's how the system already surfaces its results somewhere further mm -hmm. downstream. Then this is probably not a good idea to start with a real-time recommendation or real-time user modeling in general. You can still use the same techniques on the level of algorithms. So the same embedding mm -hmm. models, the same way you define, you know, which features are important and so on. This you can reuse, but you can run it in a batch workload, right? In order to, mm -hmm. let's say, annotate something in your pipeline, label users or do recommendations or whatever it might be. I think a good sort of rule of thumb is if you can get the actual end user interact with the result of your recommendations, right? So you are powering some sort of front end that could establish this feedback loop. So it could mm -hmm. be that the user is interacting with the results or the results affect something in the environment that you can then measure if this sort of uh, action yielded a positive result. I think this is where the feedback loop can be then shortened and you can convert faster. So for me, that's kind of how I look at it. So for example, for us, you know, at Superlinked, some of the clients want to personalize emails, an email campaign. This in and of itself, it's a batch use case, right? Because you are sending out a bunch of emails. So on the surface, batch will do. Then you start to ask, okay, so you send an email that will have some call to action, right? The user clicks and goes somewhere. Now they're in your app or on your website. They have entered the region of being able to generate this feedback. And so there they, uh, you know, you might want to actually respond to what's going on, right? So which button in the email they clicked and then what they're doing once they land, are they interacting with something that's right there or are, did they start to scroll? And then it's more towards the real-time situation. So that means in that very example that the email campaign itself, so selecting how I'm going to display my content or what I want to sell or whatever. Mm -hmm. Let's say you are doing offers, right? You are doing offers. Let's say I have the possibility to have three offers in every email that I send out to my customers. Mm -hmm. And that basically is a process of coming up with the top three offers for each client is something that I do in batch. Mm -hmm. But this is the batch world and there it's fine also to stay in the batch world. But am I getting you right that you argue for taking the feedback towards the email itself. So for example, I'm now clicking something, there is the identifier coming in and I do know for a certain point in time that the client clicked this and now is on my page mm -hmm. that this is the right time to already take into account that email click feedback, but of course not for the batch model, but then for a different model that uses or applies real-time personalization. Yep, exactly. So already the first page you render after they are landing mm -hmm. on your website from the email, you have one of those decisions of what to do with this uh, user attention. And it's a waste if you don't optimize that. Um, so I think uh, I think that makes sense. Now you have a choice, right? Do you want to maintain uh, two systems? Do you want to have your batch system and then the real-time system? And then I would ask, okay, how are you keeping them consistent? I think this is a big topic, by the way, which in the data world, people came up with something called the customer data platform, set of tools designed purely to aggregate customer data from different sources, identify kind of who is who across different systems, keep everything in one place, kind of single source of truth for your customer data. 
and connect this with APIs to everything else. We have seen this evolve for many, many years. There are now big companies doing this. We have no equivalent like this, I think, in the sort of machine learning community because all the models we build, so so here is, here is kind of a potentially controversial take, right? But for, <laughs> yes. But for me, I think people build use case and objective specific models to optimize mm-hmm. certain interactions, let's say. But these models are not really sharing their understanding of what the user is about. They might be sharing training data, right? They might be sharing maybe some features extracted from things the users interacted with, but they are not really by design consistent across themselves. And so then the user experience could feel disconnected, right? Because it's kind of different models taking different decisions in different points in the application. I don't think we have this idea that all these neural nets, for example, should have some couple layers that actually is shared across all my user modeling tasks for my product, right? And then I'm bolting on parts for that kind of make it task specific. And by the way, now, like the community is realizing that for the large language models, we will have to do this because nobody wants to pay for actually training that first half of the network, basically, right? Like we might do some sort of fine tuning on top. But the first big chunk, we can't uh, keep retraining that, right? But there's a point uh, where I would definitely disagree. Doing real-time personalization for me does not necessarily mean that I need to retrain the whole thing in real time. So. Mm-hmm. Since you have already mentioned tutor models, I guess this is a nice example to illustrate this with. Let's say we train a sequential model for users where we use the adaption of Word2Vec, so Prot2Vec, coming up with representations for users and for items in the same space, so everything's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Or we use basically the two towers for it to come up with representations. Mm-hmm. So, and now we use the latest user vector representation aka embedding Mm -hmm. and store it to some feature store when the user arrives at the platform we check for this embedding and we use that embedding to push it with some candidates through the ranker and come up with the ranking of items and pick the top most ones and now the user clicks on a certain item Mm -hmm. then i would assume i could take that click and the data of what the click is associated with, so the corresponding item embedding to update the user embedding and would result in a changed user embedding, which then could also result in a changed order of my next step or something like that. So, I mean, this is something where you would say, okay, my individual components, so what creates the user or the item embedding or the rank net, they stay the same. They won't be retrained each and every time. Mm-hmm. But what is basically the input will be changed. So how do you think about this? This is the right trade-off, I think. And uh-huh. th- these are the two levers that you have, right? You kind of have the, the embedding model. And I totally agree. This one should be more static. But I would still mm-hmm. say you need to keep it up to date, uh, but not real-time. Totally agreed. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that's kept uh, real-time updated, indeed, is the user vector. That's the first half of the network produced the user embedding. And then, you know, are you making sure that when you feed that user vector as an input to all your different downstream sort of ranking models, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow this is consistent. 
right? That the user vector is produced in a way that the perceived experience down the line for the user across all the different ranking subproblems that you might have to suggest other users to interact with on the platform, suggest content, highlight content you might have missed, which is a different objective than recommending content in a feed, right? You have like all kinds of different settings. How is it consistent across those settings? Because yeah, you kind of, okay, you insert the user vector on the input, but this ranking model, if it's a complex one, you have no uh, sort of bounds on what it might figure out to do. And this, I think it's uh, it's uh, somehow a problem. Can you elaborate a bit more on what you specifically mean with consistency there? Mm -hmm. Have you ever had an experience where, for example, on YouTube, so you know, I yeah. can make fun of YouTube because uh, it's kind <laughs> of, <laughs> um, hopefully I earned the permission. I mean, you are a YouTube user. You are always permitted to make a joke of YouTube. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, so. that's true. That's true. <laughs> part of the game. That's true. So, you know, you are watching a YouTube video and mm -hmm. you are somehow deep into a session where you are learning about some specific topic. And suddenly you get the ad that's kind of completely off topic and kind of breaks the flow of the user experience. Or you get some recommendation that's like completely off and it's kind of off in some wrong way, right? It's not, oh, the model is like exploring some neighborhood here or, you know. Yeah, yeah. So somehow spurious. Yeah. So, so like something that just seems to sort of take a whole new path, you know, and, and kind of breaks the flow of the session. This is kind of a vague and abstract way to say it, but I think it's these kind of discontinuities in the user experience that then cause the session abandon, which might, by the way, might be whole another model that you are running to predict, <laughs> you know, what's the likely outcome of all these different choices that you are making in terms of the probability for the user to leave. So yeah, the same way in the data world, we figured out how to only keep one uh, latest phone number for the customer mm -hmm. across all our different tools and use cases in a big company. The data world figured out how to model these entities and somehow figure out cross-organizationally how to reconcile and then always use the latest phone number. And in the ML world, I think the teams are still siloed. It's a completely different team doing ad selection modeling from mm -hmm. content recommendation. It's a completely different team likely using, you know, all kinds of different features on the input as well as model architectures. And these people sort of maybe sometimes talk, but there is no shared understanding of the user between those two models. Then you get issues, basically. Okay, because as part of that session, there's not only, of course, that single model that is involved, which if used only could provide that consistency. Mm -hmm. But due to the fact that there are several models involved in creating the environment in which I experience my session, aka the website or you name it, mm -hmm. and knowledge is not shared or treated in the same way, this might yield certain inconsistencies between what I as a user expect and what I'm confronted with. So mm -hmm. would that be the right yeah, way of putting it? It's guaranteed to generate this because there is many <laughs> more ways to get this wrong than to get it right. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a chatbot on your website now with the chat GPT, mm -hmm. let's use this example. Right? <laughs> Imagine you would have a different sort of model of what tone the user prefers. So friendly or professional, you would have a different model on each sub page. 
And then yeah. sometimes the bot would be talking to like a Western cowboy. Sometimes it would be talking to like a you know, professional in a bank. This would be breaking in the experience. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of maybe one way to highlight the problem in slightly made up weird scenario. This is kind of, I think, what we are dealing with. And in big companies, there are, you know, hundreds of different models making these decisions. If you don't force a shared understanding of the user, they will diverge and the experience will be inconsistent. So this is why I'm kind of passionate about user modeling as a category of problem. Because normally the problem of detecting bots and recommending videos and doing some labeling of the users are all viewed as separate problems. And I think that's a missed opportunity because I think there can be a foundational layer under all of those that just tries to understand and aggregate as many signals about the user as possible and really understand deeply the behavioral patterns and all of the traits and things that are worth knowing, uh, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, asterisk on privacy, which I think is also very important, right? For example, we don't take uh, personally identifiable information into our system and we don't You know, as the advertising world is moving from third-party cookies to first-party cookies, companies have to sort of do this in-house and they can't go behind the scenes, join, you know, user data using these identifiers, right? And we are designing a system, you know, to work in that first-party data world, hence privacy first. But with that asterisk, you should be taking everything the user gives you about themselves as a hint to what they might like or what they might Mm -hmm. be about, or maybe they are a bot, taking all of this in, doing a good centralized job of deriving representations of this that are useful for all the downstream tasks, and then having much easier job in solving those individual downstream tasks, because your, your user representation is already super rich, basically. So what is popping up in my mind as we are talking about this are multitask models. So Is this somehow addressing the problem properly or at least an answer to provide a higher level of consistency since you at least have the same basic model, but then on top of it, you have several hats for the different tasks that you want to perform? Mm -hmm. I think so. The more you can push from the task-specific model down Mm -hmm. into the foundational user model, the more consistent the output should be. And then I think objectives are an interesting topic as well, because actually when I was interviewing for for YouTube back in the day, I was interviewing both as an engineer and as a PM. And you can maybe Mm -hmm. tell that I like to talk (laughs) a lot and so on. Uh, And I worked with a lot of PMs and I understand their desire to come in and have influence over these systems, right? have editorial influence over what sort of things should we highlight for the user? What are the nice ways to encode this information, right? There are kind of all kinds of ideas coming from the product org. And oftentimes there is tension, I think, between, you know, data science and product. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Because of this, because... Because, I mean, as as an engineer or a data scientist or whatever, you want to be based on empirical facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I I don't want to say or imply that product managers don't know their business well. They should, and I would also say they do. But there's always somehow of a clinch if you want to do some certain stuff manually and uh, if you, or if you rather want to do it uh, data-based. Mm-hmm. So here's the, here's the secret uh, trick, right? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. 
here's the secret trick. So I think it's important to be able to express objectives and be intentional mm -hmm. about what the model should do and so on. So this kind of completely unsupervised uh, strategy of, yeah, let's just maximize the clicks or whatever. I don't think that works mm -hmm. because the search space is just too big. Like you have to have some insight into some feature engineering, some more refined objective setting and so on. And these things are much simpler if you have a simple model. And what enables you to have a simple model is to hide all that complexity in that user model, right? So push all the complexity there. And then on top of it, now you can play with objectives. Now you can kind of have something where you collaborate with the PM because this is now mm -hmm. meant to achieve a specific goal. And you have mm -hmm. separated that from the general, let's just create some embedding that really describes what our users are about, right? You now get to have this, this big project down there in the basement where it's all about data-driven, all about kind of uh, not really having strong opinions. And then you have this, this layer that takes that rich user signal and marries it with the objective for the product. And here is where we collaborate. This is much simpler to retrain. It's, you know, thinner network. So much easier time, right? So this is the heck of dealing with PMs. Okay. <laughs> Which is then definitely still data-driven. So for me, it just sounds more like allow the user model to have a high complexity to be generally able to represent all these different notions that represent the user's intent mm -hmm. that you can leverage or exploit with different task-specific models. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that, that's interesting. So how to combine user modeling with real-time personalization? I guess we talked quite a lot about why it's important and also on a, let's say, methodological side of how to do it. But staying with Simon Sinek, which I guess you're also a great fan of, what is the what? So in terms of the ML tooling landscape, I see that you are heavily involved with these kinds of questions. You have just yesterday been at a conference where you were speaking and discussing vector similarity search. Mm -hmm. How are we supported with the current landscape in order to perform user modeling and real-time personalization correctly? Or how do you do it? Mm -hmm. So for the listeners that are not maybe running right now, <laughs> they should check the show notes. We'll add a map of this kind of machine learning and data vendor landscape, which is this browsable, zoomable completely crazily complicated map of tools. And it tells you that, yeah, there is just a lot of options. I think, you know, traditionally this, this is the whole problem of buy versus build, right? So as a company that faces all kinds of other challenges besides user modeling and personalization, you have to figure out, okay, what's the right trade of how to navigate the problem. And yeah, for me, basically I have two steps for that process. And I think it starts with the problem, right? <laughs> and that's something I learned from my first startup, basically, right? And it, I think it's the case for any, you know, product management exercise. If you don't understand the problem you are trying to solve, then uh, tool selection is, a, is the wrong activity to be doing. I really, really like what you are saying because you hear it so often that people are basically shouting for people to be solution-driven. I rather think about it as rather be problem-driven because 
in really making sure that you understand the problem in and out and correctly, the solution is sometimes kind of self-evident or much easier. Mm -hmm. I guess there is a quote by, by Albert Einstein who somehow said, if I'm presented with a problem, I would spend 95% or 98% of time I would invest in understanding the problem and then the least 2% I need for solving it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, and it's sharpening the axe and then chopping the tree in the last uh, minute or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So especially if you talk to vendors, obviously they'll all mm -hmm. tell you they solve all the problems, right? And so why, why do you need to understand the problem if they can solve them all? But yeah, I think in reality, anybody who has been doing this for at least a little while realize that it's good to sort of experiment on your own and just feel out mm -hmm. using the tools you already have, feel the problem out, right? And maybe be agile, experiment, see where the value is going to come from in terms of performance. You know, what sort of KPI do you actually want to move? That's kind of my luck that my co-founder is uh, also software background, but then went into mm -hmm. McKinsey and uh, kind of strategic advisory, basically. And so... He's always the one who says, all right, what's the KPI we are actually moving for the company? You know, and let's keep the jargon and just, okay, how are we making our client make more money? So, and then kind of work backwards from that. And if you are in a company, you have the same problem, right? Like how are we achieving our goals that we set out to do mm -hmm. this quarter, right? Uh, and then kind of work backwards from that. So that's the first step. And then I think the second one is you are looking for tools that ideally help you get going really fast because the worst thing is to pitch this big project and then go and spend six months kind of burning through some budget uh, without having anything to show for it. And it doesn't matter that it's strategic investment, that, you know, it needs best practice, whatever. Nobody cares. After six months, you don't have results. Your manager is not going to like it. That's the other thing. Like you want tools that help you get started and get some quick wins and quick validation. But then they can kind of grow with you. So this is the one-two mm -hmm. punch, right? Easy start, get some wins. And then can I come in and start tweaking stuff? Can I override the stuff that's important for me to keep iterating on so that I can get even more performance so that I can make this fit my product better because each product is a bit different, right? This is a tension, right? Because there are lots of tools out there, even for personalization, for example, that are this kind of black box, right? So they help you, you pour all the data in, some recommendations come out, helps you get started, but then, you know, suddenly you have some idea, oh, let's prioritize this feature or something. Uh, let's engineer a whole new feature, and then you might be having a challenge. Uh, the opposite extreme, of course, is just getting a completely general compute platform and building, let's say, a real-time recommender system or any other kind of full-fledged complicated system completely from scratch, right? That's the opposite problem of six months of work and possibly not moving past that uh, proof of concept stage. Okay, I see. So it's basically a two-step approach. The first step is getting a proper problem and goal understanding. Mm -hmm. And the second stage is to start with a tool, with a technology that enables you to collect evidence, feedback, very fast, mm -hmm. but that is also capable of being extended, scaled out if it proves to be useful for you. This is the holy grail. Yes. Perfect summary. Okay. 
let's say, being confronted with that overall landscape. Why have you come up with that approach? So what is it that makes you need that approach? Is it something that you need at Superlinked or is it something that has proven to be useful in your past experience or mm -hmm. where and why did you come up with that? Um, so actually, obviously, as a part of market research for Superlinked, we are talking with a lot of data scientists and a lot of PMs have, that have to deal with data scientists, which is always very interesting. And we have seen this sort of bimodal distribution, right? We have seen that teams either sort of are on the side of, yeah, we are doing this ourselves from scratch, and then they struggle getting that on time, on budget, actually moving the KPI. And then we have seen, especially in the personalization, by the way, which is quite interesting as an application of user modeling, we have seen lots of people with almost like a PTSD, you know, uh, <laughs> of deploying some third-party solution that was a black box and getting some initial validation that personalization is a good idea, which, okay, yeah, that's good. But then running into problems of, yeah, like wanting to tweak the solution down the line, not being able to having to change your product around the recommendering engine rather than the system changing around the product. And then you have, you know, kind of, you are uh, stuck, which is also not ideal. So, and, you know, it's not just for personalization. I think there for any task nowadays, you know, you either have the API that just does it, prime example, large language models, right? But then pretty quickly, somebody wants to tweak something that you can't tweak, basically. Once you start to get the real feedback from real customers, real users, this is guaranteed to happen. And if it's not happening, then you need to go talk to them, right? Because they definitely have that. You just need to listen. So there is either this, like, here's an API and it solves your problem. This kind of a property of that whole landscape. It's, it's kind of fun to look at the landscape and kind of go, which extreme is this uh, company on, right? Is it just giving me APIs and everything is fine? Or is it giving me, like, put your Python code here or a Rust code or whatever, and then make your system and we don't, you know, that's it. Good luck, right? And they don't necessarily bundle all the tools that you need for this. So you have to rebuild. Okay, now you have to rebuild, uh, let's say, evaluation. You have to figure out how to bring human into the loop, right, for safety. There is some problem that you'll encounter while reinventing all these wheels uh, that will just make you not deliver. And I think, yeah, so there are these two camps and I have just seen that with my co-founder and we said, Let's pick a use case and let's deliver something that is easy to start with, but then also you can adjust. I mean, this sounds pretty obvious, um, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, yeah, uh, it seems that people kind of error on one or the other side. Uh, and it's, I guess, really hard also if you want to deliver something really general. If you want to deliver a platform for real-time machine learning of any kind or machine learning in general, you can't get this property of super easy start out of the box and then tweak exactly only the parts that you that need to be tweaked. So it helps to pick something, right? Pick a use case. It can be anything, but, you know, a use case and then build around that use case. I think that's what we'll see more and more as this landscape kind of explodes in complexity and people have mm -hmm. to figure out how to integrate 10 different tools to make something. I think we'll see these kind of vertically integrated solutions that look at the task and take you from zero data scientists in the company, early stage, you know, you can onboard, it's pre-configured, stuff is good. 
and then all the way to 100 million users, data science team, but still these people can work within that framework on that specific problem. Yeah, and I mean, you have taken your experiences with different frameworks and the talks that you conducted to a product, which is super linked and definitely also something that uh, we should and we want to cover here. So I have seen that Superlinked is described as a personalization engine as a service or to put it differently to evaluate, launch, and operate real-time machine learning personalization for consumer apps. <laughs> It's a mouthful. <laughs> is this something that I picked up and is not really reflecting what you would describe Superlink to be? Or, to put it differently, Daniel, please enlighten us. What is Superlinked and what is the problem that you are going to solve with Superlinked? Um, we are already solving. Uh, so we, uh, <laughs> that's uh, kind of news from late last year. We onboarded our first uh, production customer. Ah, congrats. Um, we were running kind of our own app on top of the infrastructure for the last year. Uh, but now we felt in December that, okay, uh, it's ready for the next step. And so we onboarded the social network. They are using Superlinked to personalize the feed, which is kind of the main mm -hmm. part of the social network. We have five, six customers in pilot design. So, you know, writing the integration code and many more in the pipeline. And the problem that we are solving is user modeling, unsurprisingly. You kind of heard me talk about how I think there is this foundational layer to user modeling from a point of view of a application builder or a company. You know, our solution is relatively simple. Uh, what it does, it basically has that vector embedding component that takes in the data that we talked about, the user data from the different sources, so behavioral, self-declared metadata, and also user-provided uh, third-party sources that the user mm -hmm. kind of uh, shares with, with you as the, as the platform. We help you convert all of these things into their vector representations given model configuration. Uh, so everything is basically running from a config. Uh, so kind of platform as, as code or whatever you want to call it. The config defines end-to-end -end what's going on. Uh, and what's going on is the data gets converted into vectors. Those vectors get aggregated into sort of uh, real-time representations of the users and the content. And then on top of this, we have a bunch of APIs that you can use to query those representations. And those mm -hmm. APIs are use case specific. So one for exposing a feed that you can paginate and each next page recomputes based on what the user was doing on the previous pages. Uh, so real-time personalized feed. User-to-user -user recommendations for social context, you know, follow recommendations sort of content recommendations for, you know, this email use case, so like content you missed, that type of stuff. And really anything, you know, we are, for example, now with a very big platform in conversation about bot labeling, which is this kind of label transfer use case, right? And it's supervised. So they have a bunch of labels about accounts being flagged by moderators as bots. 
And you know, then the real-time problem is when a comment comes in, this platform is a solution for comments under articles for publishers and you know some of the very big ones. Uh, so comment comes in and you want to figure out, all right, is this comment spam? Do we want to suppress the distribution of this comment within the product, right? And this is real time because if you don't, then if it's a very popular article that's getting millions of views, this uh, com comment, this spam comment that's maybe pointing somewhere else or propagating some you know, idea you maybe don't want to have there gets a huge exposure, right? So you have to make very quick decisions. But, you know, it's something that you use basically user embeddings uh, because you can have a look at the behavioral neighbors of this account. You can estimate a probability that this account has a certain label, like is it a bot, based on the, the existence of that label in that neighborhood. So that means that Superlinked is actually not only offered for use cases of personalization, but already also for something that you might not have anticipated from the very beginning, but for which it turned out to be useful or applicable as well. Yeah. And for us, you know, the if you look at superlink.com, we say build your own personalization engine, and that's a choice of a go-to-market strategy, right? Uh, because if we said build your own user modeling system, most people wouldn't really, it's too broad, basically. And so we are going with uh, personalization or this kind of recommender engine use case as the first one, uh, but yeah, already exploring other uses for basically this foundational user understanding. So do you want to do just these neighborhood queries or do you want to feed this as an input into another model? We can make that available. So, you know, that's kind of the serving part of this. Based on that config, we out of the box do these updates. We do online updates. We do batch updates. We do model retraining. But as you correctly said, not all the time, right? Because it's the vectors that uh, are kept kind of sub-second update latency. And then we also bundle experimentation. How do you do that? So you basically activate multiple models in your system, in your account. And then you define a traffic split between them. You can also just request a certain models. You can request which vectors you want to access in the query. That's kind of the neat aspect of this is that we are already getting all the behavioral events, right, to update the user representation. And so therefore, we can also use those same events to help evaluate downstream effects of the recommendations, right? So mm -hmm. we can then, you know, attribute, okay, you you use this set of vectors to generate whatever recommendation or some sort of action, right? We can attribute it back to, okay, then that user generated this and this and that event. We can run uh, sort of uh, some predicate over that and uh, evaluate if the model is, you know, how well it's achieving the goal that you set out. Looking at the landscape of specifically Rex's tooling, Superlinked is not the very first offering that allows somehow to purchase personalization as a service, if you want to call it like that. So are there competitors who are doing the same or to put it differently, what are you doing better or what is your main differentiator? Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at the space of recommender engines uh, as a service, more on the, let's say, black boxy side, meant to be used by just general, you know, long tail of companies, let's say. I think those solutions have existed for maybe a decade, maybe longer, and they basically all focus on e-commerce, 
and on very mm -hmm. specific tasks in e-commerce, uh, which makes sense because that's where the attribution of better recommendation performance to more money, it's the easiest probably, or one of the easiest, maybe except ads, where it's even more uh, precise. But there, there are fewer companies having to deal with this ad serving problem. There are many more companies having mm -hmm. to figure out which products to highlight in their Shopify store. And so that's why there is a bunch of vendors for that. Uh, and we don't really want to compete with those. Mm -hmm. Where I think we are different is in the amount of configuration that you can do or kind of micromanaging of the embedding models. You know, if you look at something like Algolia, for example, as one of the big players, let's say, in the e-commerce leaning world, you can there define, let's say, priority of different features or, or different events, but you can't, I don't think, really train a new embedding model based on some quite abstract objective. And I think it's also, you know, what we focus on is combining different embedding models together. Uh, so the config we have is you define basically parts of the vector embedding for the user to be made out of outputs of different embedding models. And they can be very simple. Mm -hmm. They can be like, uh, you know, how recent is the document, right? Which is literally a one scalar. So it's a very simple one-dimensional embedding all the way to, you know, let's say something like TFIDF or semantic embedding or embedding that's trained specifically on the customer data set with some, some set of labels in mind, right? So in the bot detection use case, you have labels of, you, you know, this user is a, is a spam account. And now you want to take this and uh, train a new embedding model that clusters spam accounts closer together, right? To kind mm -hmm. of better separate the with and without label or class A, class B users in the space so that the inference has, uh, you know, better confidence, basically. So, you know, you can't okay. do this in something that you would traditionally call recommender engine as a service, right? You can't yeah. override uh, embedding models. Uh, so I would say, you know, that's an adjacent space for us, but we don't directly compete. And then on the other side, you have machine learning MLOps platforms, right? Where you can kind of, there are now some popping up for real-time ML or real-time kind of feature extraction, but they're still general, right? So it's any use case. And there are different things that are specific about specifically the user modeling case, which is, you know, you have objects that change often, the, the user. You want to, you know, embed sequences of actions. And, and then you want to do this evaluation, right? Because the events you are getting in are user actions. So now you want to have something built in that goes and kind of aggregates uh, what the user is doing after having been exposed or not to an experiment. Mm -hmm. There is just a whole bunch of tooling around this. Because we just focus on this relatively narrow task, we can bundle into the product. Okay, so that means that you are highly compatible with existing solutions, tools in the ML ops landscape, which then also makes it much more easier to opt in for Superlink since it's not kind of narrow, but more broader in the sense that it allows a more holistic experience of, yeah, let's say deploying personalization for certain use cases. Mm -hmm. So for me, it sounds like the secret sauce of what you're doing is basically keep it 
as generic and configurable as possible. And by that, what you kind of unlock is to be able to be used in different industries for different use cases. I mean, you already mentioned that there is that use case of bot detection. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I have just listened to another podcast. In that podcast, you have been talking a bit about your experience with remote tooling for conferences. And mm -hmm. I guess uh, you also mentioned that it was unfortunately so far a pretty shitty experience for some certain platforms. <laughs> And I share your point there because it was actually not adapting to the people that were using the platform to allow for better connections that somehow adapt what these people are interested in, how they are like to kind of find like-minded people or people they would match with or something like that. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Because it sounded for me like a bit that that Superlinked or at least thinking about the very first or one of the first use cases was somehow driven by that disappointment <laughs> in how platforms, especially during the pandemic, were basically handling that problem. Yes, you are right. So This app that I mentioned, that we have our own app that was the first client for the infrastructure, is actually a networking app for professional communities. So we have this deployed in uh, actually some kind of machine learning groups as well, and we have some coming up as well. And what it does, it's super simple. Just uh, you opt in, getting introduced to another member within the community, and then it uses your LinkedIn account, which you declare upon sign up to match you with relevant other members. So you get a, on Monday, like, you know, hey, Marcel, you want to be introduced to another ex-Googler, and then you click yes, and then on Wednesday, you get introduced over email. Uh, but unlike many other similar tools, you don't fill in a questionnaire with million questions that get obsolete the time <laughs> you answer. This is kind of the declared third-party source that the infrastructure supports, mm -hmm. and the LinkedIn profile gets used, and we can find, you know, hidden gems in these communities that you should uh, definitely meet. And an obvious uh, consumer for this is the event industry. Indeed, I think as COVID moved conferences to the virtual world, I think the quality of relationships you could create went down, basically, uh, which is totally understandable. It's much more difficult to connect with people um, digitally, especially if you, as you said, like with uh, many of these platforms, especially if you just uh, get exposed to just random matches, right? Yeah, we have been quite involved with a few virtual event platforms. Obviously, that the industry is uh, now going through a change because mm -hmm. events are coming back to the uh, real world. Uh, so they have to figure out how they want to marry the online, offline and all of that. But yeah, it has been a big influence for us. And I think it's maybe part of the reason why we actually persist the user vectors, right? Because you want to find other compatible users, not just content. Yeah, that was one of the origin points. But yeah, since then, basically, when I talk with people with different problems, having a user embedding uh, that reflects differences between users in interesting ways, that's also up to date, seems to be a good input to many different things. Yeah. Yeah, I would still say that there is benefit of having that also in the future with people returning to more in-person venues because I guess there will be a long-term effect after people having experience that they don't need to be present. 
However, thinking about the last Rexus conference, so which was a hybrid conference, so we had one of these tools in place for the conference uh, that was coined the Rexus Hub. Mm-hmm. However, it didn't have, so at least I wasn't able to find it or maybe also not too much interested in using the hub since I was there in person. Mm-hmm. But I would love to have some kind of such a function. So even though you might have some interests that go beyond your pure professional interest, because it's kind of always easier to connect to people also on the basis of maybe shared hobbies. So there would be people who are into hiking and then maybe first talk about hiking and then next talk about Rexus models or something (laughs) like that. So might be definitely cool to use or exploit this in order to make connections uh, with people. So Rexus needs a Rexus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a big opportunity because events are kind of uh, attractor of attention. And mm-hmm. I think this energy that comes together, if properly mm-hmm. utilized, if something f- helps you find the 5%, the fraction of people that are coming to the event that are for you absolutely the most interesting to talk to, I think mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's a huge unlock. And maybe I would just add that, of course, your whole personality is not reflected in your LinkedIn account. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we also, by the way, support Twitter which, you know, that's maybe a different uh, part of the personality. Um, (laughs) But I think it really helps with the cold start. So it's all about this, Mm -hmm. right? You have maybe some onboarding form to your application or to your event or whatever it is. You should utilize what people tell you in that form. And if they can bring with them some social profile, bootstrapping the initial version of the user model from this and then refining based on behavior, right? So I can show you a couple of interesting items, users, whatever. And then refining this kind of real-time feedback loop, that's the magic, right? Then you go to an event with a couple thousand people and with one user session, you converge to the 10 you should absolutely meet. That's the dream. And then all the other stuff. So when we chat with, uh, you know, virtual event platforms about uh, working with us, they have all kinds of other problems. They have to personalize the agenda for the event, right? Which Mm -hmm. sessions might be interesting, you know, that there is all kinds of uh, content that they generate that... They used to activate people to actually show up and kind of think about the event afterwards. They are doing communities of alumni of events now, right? To kind of mm-hmm. keep the event going virtually afterwards. And in all of those moments across that whole attendee life cycle, there are these opportunities for just being relevant. And it's a no-brainer. So what are we going to, uh, or what can we expect next uh, hearing from from Superlinked or what is on the roadmap and what further developments or challenges are ahead of you? Mm, good question. I think our main challenge, as you said, you know, we are all about configurability, right? So mm-hmm. having configurations for common use cases in place as a starting point and then forking that off and then going your own direction from there. The challenge is in exposing the right amount of flexibility in this, right? And exactly how we should do that, right? So right now we basically have configuration language for this that helps you define the various parts of these embedding vectors and you kind of reference vectorizers that are created in code. One thing I really hate is when somebody tries to make such an expressive config that it would be easier to actually write code. I think this is <laughs> this happens often and it's wrong. I think the purpose of the config is to assemble parameters and assemble kind of the big picture view of 
what you are pursuing, and then it references code, right? And then the code is a catalog of vectorizers that we have available and we're building new ones. And, you know, because of the diversity of these use cases we work with, right, recommending jobs, like that's a big one, matching candidates to jobs, you know, this whole industry just about this. You need to be able to engineer features of the jobs problem, right? Seniority, uh, career progression. There is a lot there, mm -hmm. right? So we have vectorizers that, you know, use kind of general machine learning concepts. And then you configure them to capture something like seniority by having like some sort of keyword classifier set up to do that, right? So, and then you reference that in the config. But yeah, I think our biggest challenge, that the main thing we have to get right is to make this config just easy to make and easy to iterate on, have the support of the environment to give you feedback, give you feedback before you actually ramp the traffic up in the experiment, right? Can we have some proxies that we can highlight that help you navigate the, the problem uh, of what to set there in the config? Kind of like my problem at YouTube, right? You are creating this campaign that's almost like coding. Mm -hmm. It's so complex. Actually, that's a, that's a fun uh, thought. Uh, I, should, <laughs> I should explore if the YouTube campaigns are Turing complete. <laughs> <laughs> they might be, they might be. So how to enable people, even without a lot of data science expertise, to get started. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. 2023 is about hopefully finally making AI accessible and not just by doing these black box APIs, but somehow really helping people feel like they own the solution, right? That is not some mm -hmm. magical thing, but they have enough inputs into creating it so that they actually understand what's going on. I mean, that's the whole explainability mm -hmm. aspect of this is huge, right? If you can say that, okay, I want my embedding to be made out of these parts and I value them in these relative ways, and then I can attribute which part drove how much of the cosine distance when I'm doing the recommendation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now you can start to attribute on that level. And even if some of those embedding models are black box, which they definitely will be because it's deep learning and so on. At least you know kind of where it's coming from a little bit, right? So this is like a way to start unpacking the, the problem, you know, because you def define the vector parts in our config, now the evaluation framework we have can not only attribute to model version, but also to the vector mm -hmm. part, right? This is what you get for uh, kind of focusing on the use case and then building around it, right? Yeah, I think it's kind of this accessibility, sort of giving people the insight into the how the sausage is made, basically. So accessibility on the one hand side and on the other side, help people to develop and maintain a mental model that is more consistent between the levers that I pull and what the outcome would be. Mm -hmm. And then imagine you know, we had that conversation around how the product management should participate in the process of tuning these systems because they're definitely they they care because these systems are promised to improve their metrics right if you have some shared language for this it helps right and so we view our config as potentially a way to establish this connection between you know all right the data scientists engineer features they are deep into the individual embedding models but then the way you combine yeah. them the way you 
prioritize between them and how you define that can actually be readable by a product manager. And now you can have a conversation about that. So basically having a shared language between business and technology, yeah, for yeah. example. And then, you know, connect this to the eval, right? So you know which vector part can be attributed to how much of the downstream effect. This is, I think, path towards giving everybody enough insights to be nice to each other. <laughs> Sounds like you are not bored uh, in this and maybe also not in the upcoming years. Daniel, it's really great talking with you about all these challenges. What are for you also some more general challenges or maybe the challenge for the recommender systems field? I mean, where to start? Maybe just pick one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, one thing is pretty clear to me when we talk with companies about uh, recommended engines, you know, the people who are supposed to benefit from all this research and all this work, they have kind of a negative starting point when they're thinking about recommended engines because of what is going on in, you know, the social media and how, you know, filter bubbles, people spending one and a half hour on average on TikTok per day. The algorithm has a very bad reputation. I think the recommender engine community needs to somehow rebrand, or I don't know, I don't know what we will do, but I think the algorithms can be used to make stuff interesting, right? That's like the point of a recommender engine. In order for platforms being able to compete with the TikToks of the world, they need to not be afraid to adopt the recommender engine in the first place, because otherwise, Mm -hmm. Their engagement is down, their retention is down, they have a problem, right? So, And maybe not only adopt, but also to iterate, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think one challenge is branding. We need to figure out a way to really show that we are on the side of the end user and that we are on the side of the platform owner and somehow reframe this push for arbitrary engagement at any cost into meaningful engagement that's actually helpful for people. I like that one. This needs to, I think, come from the community. And I think a lot of the research that's being done supports this, right? So uh, mm -hmm. trying to remove yeah. biases in the models, stuff around the safety, the adversarial stuff, super interesting. I think there is a lot of research that's uh, going in the exactly right direction, but we have to find ways to communicate that and make people more comfortable with the technology in and of itself and, you know, separate that from what it's used for and how some companies manage to weaponize it because nobody else really had, had it to that extent, right? So that's kind of my goal by kind of getting this into as many hands of people building platforms, uh, we can kind of remove that part of the equation and then it matters, okay, is it actually interesting stuff that you are building there? You know, are you going towards having a platform that educates its users, achieve, helps them achieve their goals. And then you just need this as a part of your toolkit. Otherwise, mm -hmm. people just are spoiled and they, if they don't get what mm -hmm. they want from you, then they'll just uh, go back to TikTok. Really happy that you are bringing this up because I think that as a Rexus practitioner and scientist community, people already have a shared understanding that we need to go far beyond 
pure optimization of relevance and that relevance is not satisfaction and so on and so forth. We have covered a couple of these questions in, in previous episodes. But yeah, also that this is only the first step uh, in a sequence of steps where we also should bring this to the users, to the people who should in the end benefit from it and who basically the whole journey starts with. Yeah, So how to rebrand there and how to get a more positive image because people are still using it and there are good reasons to use certain recommendations, personalization and so on because in certain things it makes our all lives easier. But there are also definitely as always with many things downsides and just make sure, hey, we are working on it and this is how it looks after we worked on it and it's now better. It's all about the objective that you set, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, at YouTube, I went through a transition of at first optimizing for views, right? How many views a video gets? And then these results in clickbait video names and thumbnails. Mm -hmm. Then there was a big switch towards watch time optimization. Right. Yeah, I remember that paper by Covington back then, I guess in 2016, where they said, okay, if I only go for clicks, I encounter clickbait. So we now just only take into account full video watches. Yeah. And that's a small example of having the right objective. That's where everything starts, basically. And everything kind of derives from this, from how you train the embedding model to how you evaluate your hyperparameter tuning everything goes back to the objective. And this is basically fully in the hands of the platform owners, right? So they're mm -hmm. the ones who set out to make a better social platform or make a learning platform that's also fun or a media system or whatever, right? Marketplace. Their ability to describe this objective, right? I think it's super critical and it's part of this shared language problem, right? How do you, and then we go into like alignment and all of that stuff, right? How do you help people describe their objective for how the platform should be more meaningful, better than the more simplistic, you know, click optimization and then translate that objective into something you can train a neural network against. That's what we have to figure out. Otherwise, we're always going to stick to the lowest common denominator of a click or mm -hmm. yeah, watch time, which, you know, okay, it works better to remove clickbait uh, video names, but it still optimizes for you being just uh, stuck to the screen as long as possible, right? Not necessarily, yeah. hey, how did this feel at the end of the session? Hey, are you happy about how you spent the last hour, right? That's definitely a very relevant and critical point that is relevant for the field more than just being relevant. <laughs> As we are just approaching the end of this episode, I want to finally wrap up with two follow-up questions that should not be so much of a surprise for you. <laughs> One of them is, so if checking for different products that you use in your daily life, mm -hmm. what is the one where you really enjoy personalization? And you can't say YouTube because you're a biased. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I was afraid you say you can't you you can't say uh, Spotify because everybody says that one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm somewhat afraid that uh, I'll also have to say Spotify. I'm like huge fan of music. I, I really like how they do the discovery of less popular stuff. This is something we also okay. think about a lot: how to surface new things. So I like this aspect of their kind of tuning. Also, the amount of content they publish for the community is just uh, amazing. So 
yeah, I always kind of uh, look up to the Spotify guys. I think I'll leave it there. I think you know, maybe to all the sort of like negativity uh, about YouTube, uh, I, I will sort of fix that by saying that for the YouTube shorts, I think the platform is doing a very good job actually. So yeah, kudos to my colleagues. <laughs> So talking about colleagues or other people in the field who are working on recommender systems or doing research there, um, is there a specific person that you would like me to feature in the show? Okay, so I have, I think, uh, potentially a suggestion. <laughs> My suggestion for a guest uh, would be Lisa Colvin. So she's... Uh, okay. I don't know if you have heard, but uh, yeah, like ex Pandora personalization uh, lead and kind of with product insight as well. I think I'll be chatting with her uh, kind of next week or so. And I enjoyed our kind of exchanges so far. So yeah, I think uh, that should be quite interesting and also quite practical. So maybe in a broader sense, I think getting people who are applying these techniques Mm -hmm. and who are yeah kind of grappling with the real world messy stuff around this domain i would love to hear more from as well to to motivate you know all the research that is going on okay then i will add her to my guest list and uh, lisa expect my invitation <laughs> Yeah, it was really great talking to you, Daniel, uh, especially since we already, I would say, went into an almost philosophical <laughs> direction, which is always good since these technologies are somehow shaping, influencing our daily lives. So it definitely makes sense also to think about a bit about their responsibility. Yeah, so thanks for sharing all your experience and your thoughts on the show. Thank you, Marcel. It was uh, really awesome spending this time with you. And yeah, I hope uh, that uh, some of those thoughts uh, resonated. And if you know somebody in the audience kind of has a question or a follow-up thought, I'm very happy to chat. So yeah, feel free to... I think we'll put maybe some links for my LinkedIn and so on in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, feel free to reach out. How can people preferably reach out to you? LinkedIn, Twitter? I think I actually spent nowadays most of my time on LinkedIn from these kind of big networks. Otherwise, yeah, kind of more smaller communities, but for from the big networks, uh, LinkedIn. So I'm the most likely to, to respond there. Great. Then as always, we will put the corresponding links in the show notes and then feel free to reach out to Daniel. Cool. Then, yeah, thanks again for joining and have a nice day. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser. And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.